Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Hello, this is Pablo Sabaleta This is Troy Dini This is Kevin Phillips This is Jürgen Klopp and you're listening to the big interview with Graham Hunter Thank you Jürgen I travelled to all these interviews from Barcelona and our socios our beloved members keep us on the road This independent podcast would not happen without them Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, to become one of our members and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Graham Hunter and we'll bring you joy. For Backpage, I am Neil White and this is The Big Inside View, the podcast where big interview listeners get a close-up look at Spanish football from Graham Hunter, who was at Barcelona 5, Real Madrid 1, the match we'll be talking about shortly. But first, I want to say that at the start of this season, Graham and I attended a friendly between Leicester and Valencia at the King Power as guests of Liam Deasy, a social of this podcast and a friend. 24 hours later, we recorded a big interview with Christian Fuchs. Christian and everyone we met at Leicester talked of the way in which their club had been changed under the guidance of Vichy Shvardana Prapa, who died along with four others as a result of the helicopter crash at the stadium this weekend. Our thoughts, Graham, are with our friends at Leicester City. I'm deeply moved, um, very nearly uh, um, emotional, in that um, you're right that Leicester were... A fabulous, I think the fabulous experience was based around the the way in which you could see not only how they had decided to treat us, but that they that this was their policy that they were very tight knit as a family, but very outward looking, and that we uh, were treated with respect and kindness is something that any human being, whether you're reporting or or not, notices and likes. It, football carries a reputation for being a little bit mercenary and uh, cold-hearted and um, on a weekend when um, everybody around Liverpool was donating to funds to to help the fan who was violently beaten and left injured. Um, and when you see the enormous impact that um, the helicopter accident has had on everybody, then... Yes, you're right to to talk about this, and we 
witnessed what seemed then to be brilliant and modern and and fascinating. I really thought, well, the Leicester owners have got such a such a fabulous way of um, investing the money, spending their time, and they've made a great difference to this community. So it seems to me to be a terribly sore loss. You're right that Liam is a great friend of this podcast, supporter of this podcast, and he and Christian probably stand for many, many, many thousands who whose world seems a little bit broken um, as we record this. And I'm very, very glad that you mentioned it. And um, although the, the, the tone will change as we talk about something that was that was beautiful, not because Barcelona won, but because the, the football was extraordinary, the tone will change a little bit. It's the right way to start. And um, for anybody who felt um, robbed of a great personality or just traumatised by what they saw or what happened, then then definitely our minds and our, our souls are with you. Thanks, everybody who listened to our Classical preview last Friday. I hope you also got the chance to watch the match on Sunday. I did, with colour commentary from the all-Aberdeen front two of Steve Archibald and Graham Hunter. <laughs> Graham, Steve was one of my favourite big interview guests when we met him in Barcelona um, a couple of years ago now. How is he as a colleague in the commentary booth? <laughs> Pretty much um, what you'd expect. He's very, very, very scathing of things and people who catch his disfavour. Noticed. Um, he, he's always been a, a very um, blunt guy in terms of expressing his opinion. Steve wouldn't be a great fan of players who go down too easily and, and wants, not just this weekend wanted, but wants in general, an immense amount more from Gareth Bale and anybody who listened to his co-commentary yesterday would have judged that. He's somebody who's extremely funny, very, very uh, pithy and withering. Um, and, and for example, while our opinions sometimes differ, I've earned his respect. I can say that because if he was in this phone call, even if he pretended not to agree, it, he would say it's true. And that's been a, a job of work and it's based not on friendship, but on shared football ideas or experiences. Um, I'd, I'd point out that he called the whole idea of Dembélé having an impact on the game very well, right from pre-kickoff, whether Dembélé starting would have been as effective and therefore that might water down his impact. But as a co-commentator, when you've got somebody who's clear-cut about what Dembélé's role should be, who admits that over the previous weeks he's been staunchly critical of many of the things Dembélé does, but never critical of his talent or pace... And Steve's idea that Dembélé could win the Classical in, in the second half, spoiler, came true. So working with him, Neil, and, and also, listen, um, given the tone that we, we use in these chats, I, I don't hide the fact that um, he impacted me hugely as, a, I don't know, a 15, 16-year-old when he took Aberdeen twice to Celtic in the space of 20 days in April 1979 and was a significant part in scoring in each one of of two victories that brought Aberdeen their first title since 1955. So working on live television commentary at a Camp Nou Classico with a former Aberdeen hero by my right-hand side, you know, life is good sometimes. Not bad. 
Okay, let's get into it. When I asked you last week whether Real Madrid might succumb to the kind of beating that would precipitate the demise of Julian Lopetegui, you said possible, but the pride of their players would likely prevent it. Now, this isn't a straightforward game to unwrap, I know, but can we start by looking at the last 15 minutes? So the 15 minutes that come after the 3-1 goal. I didn't see much pride from Madrid. What did you make of that phase? It felt to me like something I've I've never seen at um, a classical because even in the 6-2 or the 5-0, which stand out, I saw televisual versions of the of the two 5-0s in the, in the Michael Laudrup era when he played in a 5-0 for Barcelona. And pretty much a year later, I think nearly today, played in a 5-0 for Real Madrid in a Clásico. And they felt like contests throughout, heavily won by one side. Whatever the adjective that you and I come up with to describe those last 15 minutes yesterday, hapless, pathetic, embarrassing, in my eyes in the period you've described where you didn't see a lot of reaction or pride. It, it genuinely felt, for the first time in any of the Clásicos I'd been at, that... Every time they went up the pitch, Barcelona looked like they would score. Probably, really, apart from decision-making, probably should have scored another two. Probably should have set a modern goal-scoring record in the, in the classical. Didn't. And the 3-1 goal comes in the 75th minute. And Lopetegui afterwards in the press room, we, we were translating live for the, the World Feed on La Liga television I, I chose to do Lopetegui, Simon Hanley, my, the, the lead commentator, uh, did uh, Valverde. And in the press conference, Lopetegui said, at 3-1, the game was killed off, we weren't in it, it was done, th- that was us beaten. Um, the manner in which these players actually acted out those words wasn't good. I think that collectively they knew that um, Lopetegui's era had come to an end, abruptly and so early. And subconsciously or consciously in some cases, they were just washing their hands of the game, the day, him, um, their performance up to now and and getting ready as footballers do to shuck responsibility onto the guy who'll be sacked because it won't be them. And I think that mentally they were like, well, Monday morning we press the reset button and, and on we go. That makes sense. But I just don't get how that is in any way kind of permissible from the point of view of the Real Madrid organisation or indeed their colossal fan base in terms of those players. You know, they, they, Surely there has to be some blowback for, the, for those guys too. And what I'm doing is I'm mixing what I saw with what footballers and managers have told me throughout my career. They're human beings, they cheat sometimes. You, you and I have sat in big interviews uh, repeatedly, so has Martin and, and increasingly so will Chris Tate, listening to... Players who talk about their players who hide, Neil. Do you remember the times when we've talked about footballers who say, look, no, this is other guy that we're talking about is a real footballer because he will always show for the ball and show in in the knowledge that he's showing to get it. Not 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 pretending to want it and not hiding. If you take that basic kernel, that concept of in a tough match, you're a player who wants the fans to think that you want the ball when you actually don't. That's no different to what you're describing that you saw in the last 15 minutes. There were shells of people running around pretending to still be interested in the game, and they weren't. Had it not been for some of the decision-making up front, um, little moments of, of Courtois, and, and for example, I, I, I think there's a sense of helplessness too. I don't, I don't want to be 
outright condemnatory in, in trying, at least from my eyes, to diagnose the thing that you saw. And I'm glad you raised it and glad you raised it in the way that you did. But I also felt and I thought I saw a, a sense of helplessness. So, for example, when the 3-1 goal goes in, they've been applying the tactics that the manager has suggested. And, and we, we need to come back to Lopetegui. But when halftime comes and out on the pitch we see Odriozola, Asensio and Lucas going through the kind of warm-up that makes you know that they're not just missing the team top because they're not interested but one of them's coming on. I honestly believed it was going to be Ceballos and I thought that he was going to add urgency and dig and, and more vertical passing to the midfield. Instead it was Lucas and it looked fabulous and we'll come maybe to that in a second but while Lucas is he's getting width and verticality down the right and, and, and hiding off the touchline, he, he was hiding off the pitch and nobody seemed to pick up on it and Barcelona for some reason thought he was invisible. But what was left was this great big gap in midfield because they went to three at the back, Casemiro dropping in between Nacho and Ramos in the way that Busquets will often do for Barcelona. But because Casemiro is the pivote and there was nobody else willing to occupy those tasks and physically occupy that area of the pitch, th there was a great big gap. And while Real Madrid were bombarding Football Club Barcelona in that period when they could and should have equalised, and if Benzema applied his normal heading skills and, and, and Luka Modric doesn't hit the post, you know, they go into that final spell of the match 3-2 up when at halftime they should have been 4-0 down. And what I'm getting to is when that third goal goes in, when Barcelona manufacture a really good goal, because apart from maybe Didier Drogba in the Allianz Arena in the Champions League Cup final between Chelsea and Bayern Munich, I struggle to think of many better headers that I've seen in my life. I, I thought his header from the distance and given where the ball came from and how little velocity was on Sergio Roberto's ball into Suarez to direct that ball top corner past a physical beast like Thibaut Courtois that's I, I thought it was just an utterly incredible header so when spirits are broken there Sergio Ramos gets the ball and boots it up towards the moon and what I think I saw was a sense of right we've 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 been bombarding them we had this tactic that we thought was working We'd been undressed. We were nearly in the game. That's us gone. They felt a helplessness. Sergio Ramos would go on to commit a really heinous, inexplicable error for goal four for Football Club Barcelona. In my opinion, apart from the, the, the fact that I was arguing that I felt they'd given up, which I still think they had, I think that they were overcome by a sense of futility and helplessness and embarrassment. And you or I, and it's true in, in, in whatever amateur level we've played at, that would have enraged me, that would have kept me going. But I think in some instances you get multi-millionaire players who know that the, the, the bill isn't going to be presented to them for, for that defeat, who, who've been on a winning spree. And when you're rusted, when, when the, the Pep Guardiola's phrase about praise weakens you, success weakens you, you saw weakness out there. And it's not, it isn't a direct... That explains all consequence of winning three straight Champions Leagues. But the diagnosis from Dr. Zidane was in May, there's something wrong here and it needs 
monumental change. Otherwise, there'll be problems continuing. We saw that. We saw that. So one, players who know that a sacking's coming. Two, players who've been rusted psychologically, physically in some cases, for several months, I think. And we saw it all coming together against a better rival with a sense of humiliation and helplessness. And I think that accounts for that that mad spectacle you saw where for about 15 minutes it looked like Barcelona could score another two or three goals. That's great. You've already done something that I, you know, I completely agree with, which is identify these three periods, the, 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 the chaotic final 15 for Real Madrid, the first chunk of that second half when Madrid were on top. And that leaves us with the first half. So I want to talk a little bit about the first half. You got the Barcelona 11 bang on in our preview. Tell me how you think that team managed to dominate Madrid for the first 45 minutes. The thing that I saw, first of all, um, again, in my strong opinion, is that they they did something that I felt that they were capable of and I thought I'd seen before, which is that when Messi's on the bench, they've got this feeling of 7th Cavalry is always there and they play underneath themselves. And when they're absolutely clear that Messi cannot play, minds click into focus. What are we doing? Who's team leader? Certain players step forward. Again, I think that there was a very good dry run in that the formation we actually recorded on the Wednesday morning and the formation was used that night because although there was a slight change, my memory tells me Semedo started against Inter, but he was dropped and then reinstated midway through the second half so that Rafinha could be taken off. The, the formation of putting Coutinho into an area whereby... And it's so funny that there are still major doubters about him. Everywhere I turn, I hear people saying, not much of a Barcelona footballer. There's a very common refrain, whereas I think, you know, external eyes will be saying, well, Coutinho is en route to becoming a popular sort of top five bet for the Ballon d'Or and he's very high profile and he steps into Messi's responsibility and so on, so on, so on. And he's now got, I think, 15 goals in 26 starts. So he's he's at his most prolific of his entire life. He's patently somebody who tries to learn. But it did strike me that he is not a midfielder. That When he masquerades as a midfielder, it's so that he can be an attacking presence in behind two strikers. I'm not certain yet, personally, that he still does enough work in this Barcelona team to be considered a midfielder in terms of tracking back, pressing. But he's... Evidently extraordinarily gifted one-on-one and his ability to strike the ball from distance and hit the net is, is very, very good. And he has timing about how to arrive in the box. So that it was my idea that if, if Suarez is the leader up front, Coutinho tucked in behind, at which point Rafinha, across the two games that he played, did interesting things for me. I, I think he'll be sold. I think that what he's done is plump up his value plump up his desirability too. And against Real Madrid, I, I thought he had a slightly different role than he did against Inter, albeit that when he scores against Inter, he drops deep, puts in a very good tackle that people might not have noticed because of the beauty of the one-two via which Suarez returns the ball to him and he scores against Inter. Um, his tackle in midfield in midweek was extremely good and was the kind of evidence of a guy saying, I'll prove myself, I, I'm in this game. And it won him his place again, but he was very much an interior. You, you know, I'd love to sit Valverde in with you so that you could question him because everybody said Marcelo's the weak spot. Marcelo will be fun. 
Marcelo will cause difficulty up front, but as a defender, he's lost his GPS. And the idea was to attack him. Everybody saw getting down Barcelona's right side is absolutely vital. And Rafinha was ostensibly the right midfielder or right winger in front of Sergio Roberto. And Rafinha largely played in off the strikers, in behind the Coutinho and Suarez. And, and associated play as what they call in Spain, an interior, an, an old style inside forward. And it was very much in the first half left Sergio Roberto to plough alone furrow in trying to isolate or beat or trick uh, Marcelo and, you know, just found it strange. So the the team, the, 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 the tactics, you, you can't really criticise because they've won 5-1. You asked about the 11 that I named that I thought might work. What I saw above, you know, tactics... I think I had a greater role to play in the second half in, in each manager's decisions. What we saw in the first half, as far as I'm concerned, is is a slumbering, cumbersome Real Madrid and a, a Barcelona who, as soon as they get the lead, take advantage in terms of pace, in terms of speed of thought, in terms of brightness. Like I'll tell you two things that, that epitomise that first half. One... Real Madrid are not in an awful position for the, the first goal when Coutinho scores. It's very deep. Coutinho picks it up in sort of left midfield, plays it back um, to Ivan Rakitic, who's playing at that stage in a, in a back three. Busquets is much more advanced and Rakitic passes it to Busquets. And Busquets, before the ball arrives and takes a look over his left shoulder, sees Rafinha covered, tiny glance to his right. And as he's playing the ball back to Rakitic, that tiny glance to Sergio Busquets' own right has set Jordi Alba running. He knows. He knows, um, okay, in this instance, probably only two passes ahead. So Jordi Alba knows he's going to get it. And he's on the run. And Bale stands and points. He instinctively understands that when the ball gets delivered back to Rakitic, from Busquets. Busquets has done it not because they're knocking it about. There's been enough time for everybody to understand what's coming next and Rakitic launches this lovely ball over the top. Nacho is tucked in right next to Varane and therefore Nacho is not in the outright right-back position. Alba goes, Bale he's pointing without looking to a space behind him where if he turned and looked or if he'd been working back he'd have seen that Nacho wasn't there. The ball from Rakitic is over the top and brilliant. Alba's first touch is absolutely sensational because he controls it and nudges it so far ahead of Nacho, who's turned and tried to be on the run, that if, if Alba kills it dead, Nacho might catch up. But because Alba doesn't kill it dead and the ball bounces on so that he can run onto it, Nacho's out of it. And then the ball, he's got a shot to the front post, Alba's got a shot to where Suarez is dragging a defender, and it could be a little shunt it in front of Suarez and see if he can flick it past Courtois. He doesn't, he cuts back, and as the ball is cut back, it's perfect for Coutinho, but what it also illustrates is Real Madrid's midfield walking back. So Coutinho has arrived without cover, without any encumbrances about how to score the goal, because men in white shirts have been treated by men in black suits with that little ray gun that makes you forget what you're supposed to do to cover opponents when they're running away from you. That was a moment which didn't just give Barcelona a lead, which gave them further energy and intensity and the crowd went wild. It was a moment which identified that Real Madrid were not competing properly. On the second short, much shorter moment that explains, I think, a little bit about 
what, what happened is that a simple 1v1 moment in that I genuinely don't believe that as Suarez wins the penalty, he thinks he's going to get in front of Varane to do a soft side foot off a ball coming in from the left. The angle isn't there. What I think, I still believe what Suarez has done is probably won a legitimate penalty, but he's won one by being so much quicker of thought than Varane. Varane probably hasn't realised what's happening. Suarez gets himself into a position where the referee looks at it and the VAR looked at it and says, well, he's, he's going for the ball. And he just gently hits the brakes, just instinctively hits the brakes so that Varane barges. I mean, it looks like a penalty. I think that Suarez has carved that penalty out of very little initial material. And it's just another example of Barcelona being in the zone and um, Madrid being zoned out. Okay, that takes us up to halftime. So let's take our own halftime break. After some Bovril and a pie, we're back with the second half from Camp Now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And we're back. Graham, you said we'd get back to Lopetegui, so let's take him on. You've described the substitution, the move to, to 3-5-2, and a game that ended terribly for, for him and his team. He, he actually came up with the right solution, though. What I was a little bit disappointed in him is that he had a chance to take some credit out of this, because from halftime till 75 minutes, Madrid were on top. Barcelona were un, unsure about what had gone wrong. Certainly the players on the pitch were being outnumbered. They didn't know where the superiority was coming from. Madrid time and time again arrived at the edge of the box and got shots away where either they put it wide or over or hit the post or Benzema missed a a glaring chance with a header from a right-wing cross. And Lopetegui looked to have done really well and it looked to be his players' fault in 75 minutes that they went 3-1 down and the game was dead. And at the end in the press conference, he talked about having made that change because Varane was injured. Now, at that stage, nobody knows you know, how badly injured he is. And really, frankly, if that's going to be your last game, which at 5-1 down in the press room, you should calculate it is, then what you do is, well, I had this idea. You know, Tactically, I saw this. You don't say, well, it was forced upon me. And that was typical of Lopetegui's political lack of nous in that, you know, rearranging the facts a little bit or just delicately omitting something wasn't going to keep him his job or win him the points. But what it could certainly have done 
was allow us to think, well, Lopetegui was really smart in what he did there. And, you know, good luck to you, Jalen. Best luck in the next job that comes along. So what I saw rather than a 3-5-2 was definitely three at the back. I mean, I, I genuinely thought that what we saw was Lucas playing very nearly as a right winger. He did, you, you're fair to say, have some wing-back duties, but he hung high up the pitch at points when Real Madrid were trying to clear the lines at the back. And, you know, I described this because of our vantage point was almost vertically above him. He was hanging around on a piece of turf, which was on the wrong side of the line. And nobody was marking him. And Marcelo's being so wide left and looking for a superiority there by Benzema peeling left. Lopetegui had patently said the goal will come from somebody arriving from midfield. And, you know, lo and behold, it does because it's the overlap that, or the, the extra man, the superiority, as the Spanish call it, of, of Isco arriving inside Lucas, who's picking up the ball again unmarked and that lovely little ball from Lucas into Isco. And then chaos ensues and Marcelo finishes brilliantly. That little touch off his belly to, to put Piquet on his butt is it was fantastic. Really nice piece of improvisation. As the ball comes to him, it's chaos in front of him. How can I shunt it past Piquet so that he loses his balance? Well, off off my belly and um, opens an angle and scores. But, you know, it, it was an enormous risk. It looked and felt like, because there was a chance if Varane was coming off, you know, you can put on a fullback and bring Nacho into the middle and say that that's how we'll handle it, we'll keep the formation. There was a degree to which Lopetegui got credit from the change. It was hugely risky, and at the time it felt like the last roll of the dice from somebody who thought, well, I'm out of a job, I'll go all in. And there will be games when Madrid playing like that will score four times in a, in a, in a sort of, what was it, 30-minute period from 45 to 75. And maybe they should have done really, to be honest with you. Really, they should have scored at least twice instead of just the once. And the players in Blaugrana weren't working out, Neil, in my opinion. And I think it took, although Valverde wins the day and it's Valverde's change that Steve Archibald was exhorting him to that wins the day, I think he took a long time to work it out. A long time to work out that, you know, the gap between the the high press that they were doing with Marcelo and, and Lucas very high and wide the the way in which the three at the back were playing quite well. Casemiro had his best m- moments in the game at centre-back in between uh, Nacho and Ramos, but what Barcelona didn't seem to realise for a very long time was that the gap in midfield was utterly gigantic. And if Messi had been on the pitch, then he would have ripped Madrid to shreds from just about five or six minutes into the game because he'd have understood where to hang, he'd have been given space that would have been devastating for Real Madrid, but because he wasn't at the pitch, nobody stripped to play worked that out. Valverde took half an hour, Neil, when the game could have been lost to work it out, and then got it bingo bang on right. Absolutely spot on about who to bring on, in that, you know, when he changes, for example, I knew that it was going to be, first of all, Rafinha and then Coutinho. And Dembélé, if you think about where he picks up the ball from Jordi Alba, a brilliant volleyed pass under a press. Um, that little one-two between Artur and, and Jordi Alba and the left-foot volley pass that leaves Dembélé in a Bermuda Triangle of space is is how to, to rip open that right peach. And they do and they score and that's it, game over.
Okay, I want to ask you unfairly now to come up with some kind of timeline for Madrid. What happens with Lopetegui? What happens with the succession? In your opinion, we've talked about this in a previous podcast, um, kind of likely alternative succession plans for Florentino Perez. And also, after a relatively quiet summer, do you think the playing staff will see change in January? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not unknown for um, Real Madrid to, to do successful business in, in January. Now, going back to the timeline, I, I would contend, and I think, I hope, I said it on the big inside view before, that um, Lopetegui's fate was, was sealed already. Um, if it hadn't been sealed before Victoria Pilsen in midweek, the way in which they were left clinging on against that side did so. The vibes I was getting from people who who know the inside of that club uh, very well uh, were that Florentino Perez, already disgusted, had seen enough that night. Um, it happens to have coincided with Antonio Conte uh, seeming to be um, financially satisfied with his settlement from Chelsea. Um, equally, last week I spoke to somebody who knows Conte well and said that Real Madrid has been a, a dream job objective of Conte's for the longest time and not one that necessarily he believed at Juventus that he would ever get. Um, he didn't believe that um, necessarily there w- there wasn't a queue of people more appetising to Florentino Perez ahead of him. Um, he didn't necessarily feel that his brand of football was one that Real Madrid would choose, and he's not appointed yet, but I think he will be appointed. I think that the the timeline includes something that will possibly supersede some people who are listening to this. In that, uh, there's a board meeting on Monday night. We're recording on Monday morning. I think that board meeting will be to formally ratify the the sacking of Chilin Lopetegui. Um, whether they are ready to instantly appoint Conte, I, I'm not wholly convinced. Um, but I think that there's a cup game in midweek. I think there might be an interim manager. And I think it's it's feasible as we speak, given Conte's desire to have this job, that he may be in charge for next weekend. But what I would predict as, as just stepping gently outside the t- timeline is that the um, the weathermen have detected the rain that's coming, the storm that's coming. Because when Sergio Ramos spoke last night post-defeat, and he was asked about Conte and asked about Conte's methods, which are ultra intense, ultra demanding, which tend to be, even in the best of times, methods that cause sparks with his players. It's a very black and white situation. You're either in and committed or else you're very out under Antonio Conte. And the, the journalists were probing for the idea that, you know, at Real Madrid, it's, it's a sort of, libertarian democracy in that the players kind of rule and the coach can come in and share some ideas at the time and it's exactly how Zidane played it um, with a very light hand on the tiller and and Conte is not that and and Ramos was asked about it and I think rather stupidly given how he's playing right now he snarled out uh, um, you don't um, demand respect when you come in to Real Madrid you earn it so that was Ramos already jutting his chin out, a manager who hasn't yet been appointed and who will find fault with Sergio Ramos's form right now and who may, I stress may, be brought in by the president as somebody who might do some um, some pruning um, because things don't simply need to change by who's bought by Real Madrid. 
attitudes and daily working patterns need to change because while it's been glorious watching them win the European Cup three times in a row, the health in football doesn't come from um, this Pavlovian idea that you ring the bell on the big nights and you come out to to play snarling and, and hungry and then you trip up in the league campaign time and time again against smaller teams or you're beaten, you, you know, you're severally beaten by four goals or 3-0 at home or 5-1 away to your most bitter rival. And therefore, you, you know, it's absolutely clear that Real Madrid have things to change. They don't look like retaining their European Cup this year and that would be natural. But they have real work to do um, to lift the domestic league title. Real, real fundamental changing of attitudes and ability to keep compete week in, week out in the way that Messi and Piquet and Alba and Busquets and before them Puyol and Iniesta and Xavi showed they knew. And, and th- these are great transplants of work ethic, attitude, new blood, but it, there must be some pruning. So maybe Conte is going to be challenged with that. But if he takes over, then I predict that the, the timeline will begin to include some very, very, very fiery times in press conferences, post-matches, and between him and some of his players. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Graham, a memorable Classico. Thanks so much for breaking it down for us. Can I just paint a picture to everybody that when we'd finished the match and when we'd finished the press conferences and we were walking away from the camp now en route to the studios where I spent the rest of the evening um, in the company of Chappie Ferrer and Gustavo Poyet, which was very enjoyable and intriguing, I was bombarded with um, messages from the Dandy Dange and from our good friend um, Kevin Bridges, who's coming up in this channel very soon, with uh, information about how many minutes were left at Hamden and who'd scored our goal. And I scared everybody on Traversera Las Cortes, where you've been, and when the final whistle was blown, and it was brought to me virtually by my two uh, WhatsApp communicants. And I roared and danced a jig of delight all across the road and celebrated our mighty victory. Come on, ye dandies at Hamden over Rangers. So the description of my Glasgow day, Neil, wouldn't be complete without that. Now that is our show. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more big interviews. Adios, amigos. Thank you for joining us for season 2018-19. We've got huge creative plans for the months ahead, but we do need your help to make them happen. Please go right now to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and become a socio, become a paying member and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. Last season, socios listened to nine exclusive big interviews, including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, Roberto Di Matteo, and loads of me talking about football. The Premier League, the Champions League, Spanish football. I'm sure they enjoyed it and you will too. Support us, join us. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.